Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. The hot new tagline. Yes, it is. It is our hot new tagline. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't like culture. Right. You come here for that. Yes. So it's our educational mission, our political mission to bring culture to spiritual mission spirit. Yes. Bring culture to the rest of our race to the appropriate level we don't right. we don't not everybody needs to be listening to like wagner operas or something but well well maybe okay <laughs> maybe you disagree but at least everyone is capable of some amount of culture and it is true uh it's it's apparent to all of us that in the west right now there's just not enough culture and, and people are starved for it oh yeah just, even if it's like we're talking about rustic or high culture yeah, even even just yeah, fairy tales i mean what do people oh, think yeah. of as culture is superhero movies which are jesus uh, just you know complete trash you know i like the uh, entire marvel repertoire needs to be replaced with grims oh yeah no i i i this week i was reading the nibelungenlied which i read i read the first half of in high school and i didn't i only got back to it recently and and read the, la- the second half of it and it's so great it is like a superhero movie in that characters who are part of the general universe appear out of nowhere and bust into the action without really any explanation like oh there's a tilde hun or oh there's theodoric the goth <laughs> so in that respect it's kind of like a superhero movie and the the ultra ultra violence yeah but uh, what's different about the Nibelungen lead versus, you know, Amer- American superhero movies. And uh, if you're wondering, this is not the topic of this episode. We're just talking about this. Well, or the topic is, is uh, Clausewitz. But th- what's different about the superhero movie versus Nibelungen lead is in superhero movie, it's a Jewish morality where there is evil and there is good and good has to be evil. But and that's the total driver of the action of all the plot action is good versus evil, which is childish and idiotic. It is. It's very simplistic. In Nibelungenlied and pretty much all, well, actually all literature that should be yeah, called all that, real Western literature. Yeah. The action is driven by conflicts between what is considered right and uh, conflicts of interest in Nibelungenlied. There's uh, misunderstandings and particular people have conflicts about well do i follow my uh my oath to my lord or do i follow my responsibility to my guests who are now in conflict with my lord and so there's real the action is driven by these real things that yeah, it's are like act- real metaphysics real existential concepts yeah. right real things that actually ennoble you as a person to think about these problems and so it's it's much so much better yeah it's not literally just black and white my evil versus my good as you pointed out very well you know like the the, again, this this goes through through a lot of uh, the you know Christ, or Jewish style uh, philosophies as well. Again, Marx again haves and have nots. There's always a there's always a good and evil side to every every juxtaposition of, of Jewish thought. There's always that haves and have nots or or good versus evil, God versus Satan. It's, it's just yeah. it's, everywhere you go, it's the same thing. Well, it's, and it's also just this superhero movies are completely culturalist. There's no there's no background. These heroes are all made up. There's no oh, yeah. historical, there's no uh, legendary origin, there's nothing. And, you, you know, Nibelungenlied, it's loosely based in events of the 5th century AD. And actually, I'm, I'm curious about this. I just ordered a book off Amazon about this. So I'm going to try to read up on that and see, is there any historical basis for it? I mean, there's a little bit you can tell. It was, Wait, so by first superheroes? 
No, or, not for superheroes. Oh. <laughs> for for the Nibelungen lead. For, oh, yes, oh, oh. for the real superheroes. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And there is for some of them, obviously, Attila the Hunter, Theodoric the Goth. But is there a historical basis for Gunther, the King of Burgundy? I mean, it seems like there oh, is right, a, yeah. at least a, a, sh- a shadowy one. Uh, they could also be not necessarily caricatures in a negative way, but caricatures of historic figures that did exist, but they just had to completely change over who they right. were. I mean, it's, it's like Homer's Iliad. It's the, the, the question of, I find the question of historicity of the Iliad fascinating, and there's yeah. a lot of good books on that. But before we get to Clausewitz and you know what we're going to talk about regarding Clausewitz today, I, I did bring this up because I want to talk about our the educational mission of our program here. So like we said last week in the beginning we're not trying to push the bounds of scholarship and discover new things because I think that's a waste of time. And my concern, at least for us and right for, in the scope of our right. And, and, and I think that too much of that is being done in both in academia and, and our movement. I and mean, of course there are people in our movement like um, Andrew Joyce who do it very well and ought to keep doing it. But there's a lot of people who try to do it who probably shouldn't. And there's a lot of, <laughs> emphasis on trying to find out new things when we don't really know the basic things. And I see the educational purpose of this movement as is it having a strong political motive. We ought to be developing people who can uh, hold themselves out or be held out as intelligent and culturally well-developed people, because there's a, there's a big political cachet that comes with that, that our movement is not taking full advantage of and the mainstream certainly is not taking advantage of i don't think there's it's hard to point to an educated man in our society that's for sure it's hard and and especially in leadership yeah oh especially but yeah as far as like you know getting into it's it's usually cart before the horse a lot with a lot of these discussions because they get straight into esotericism without you know dealing with a foundational material that is required to understand anything beyond it right so it's like building a house right you have to have the foundation before you can get to the second third and fourth right we're, and we're, this is what we were talking about last week with with derivative versus classic right yeah so we want we want classic you ought to start with classical stuff things that are based in nature and based on human interactions based on the very principles of the world yeah fundamental natural truths and whatnot before you get to things that rely on other works of literature or philosophy to be understood effectively the later building elements of civilization yeah something that develops over time as as you again as as you have enough foundational material that everybody understands then you can build from there but the problem is now is that nobody basically has any of this foundational material so there's really no way to build beyond that and you just sound like some some yeah, kooky, everybody's just doing like, en- it's like endless remixes. Yeah, but you, you also sound like a kooky, you know, wizard in the woods when he's just only talk about esoteric stuff all the time. When and with not to say that that sounds bad in and of itself, but it sounds crazy to other people that have no foundational information whatsoever. Well, it does sound bad to everybody if you're the kooky uh, wizard in the woods talking about derivative things and you actually are talking about it incorrectly because you don't know any of the right the original stuff well, right that makes you even more of a kooky that makes you an actual kooky wizard because you yourself don't have the foundational base to be talking about that crazy esotericism right so in in selecting our topics for these shows we're trying there's a sort of balance we have to do we're trying to do it trying, trying to pick things that are non-derivative and classic and that we want to inspire our audience to go out and read for themselves and study yeah and perhaps bring you know bring something to dis- to the overall discussion because that's we can't possibly create a new intellectual culture 
by ourselves. And I, I was realizing this in the last few months that it's really hard to get into a subject and to really understand it when you're not surrounded by other people who are doing the same thing. Like, a, and, like an artist collective in a sense. Yeah, right. Like that. Because you have the advantage when you're in academia now for all of its faults, you have the advantage of being around other smart people who are interested in the same thing as you are. So in all of your discussions, casual conversations, you're necessarily talking about things that are relevant to what you're working on and you're getting the best processed opinions and you're not having to uh, leaf through a bunch of things that don't matter, which makes it very difficult to be an individual scholar. Right, yeah, because you have to the the concept of having to weed through all of all of your own information. Okay, so like as as a most both of us have been to, to to university in the modern world, right? So yeah, we're very unfortunately, yeah, right, unfortunately well versed in in how much of a, a slog it is to get through the, the effectively the what is a bog of information you know like you have too much it's just too much it's too much and it's too useless they they and, and the thing is they they want you like that takes on a tangent about what they want you to actually learn you know or why they give you so much false information or, or so much useless information because it keeps you ignorant like having right. having too much it, it's it's uh i've said this before about well, it's it's, um, it's like the i mean everyone can relate to this in the regard of the mass media Right. It's just everyone, we all process, have to deal with, read the mass media and process it to get information. Yeah. And you can't process it because there's just so much bad information. That right. It's, it becomes information fatigue at that point. Right. And it's it's kind of like a reverse dark age, right? Where they give like, or the quote unquote, what a dark age would be considered. Not necessarily that the actual middle ages were a dark age per se, but the, this colloquial concept of of a dark age is that there is so little information that people are just basically ignorant. Well, the antithesis is also true where there's so much yes. information that you can't possibly get through enough of it to where you you are at that point stagnated in, in your ability to to move forward. Yeah, because you can't process it, you can't you sort the things to according to their importance, yeah. you don't know where to start. Yeah, all those things. So the tension in our selections here is between we want things that are educationally valuable, so things that are classic and that people can understand and that from which you can build to higher concepts. And then we also are trying to find things that are popular. Uh, and by I say popular, I don't mean popular to the, to the, the, the masses. <laughs> I mean, popular in the sense that people want to listen to us because we're talking about something that they can't get information about elsewhere, or it's very difficult to, or any of the information that is available about it is uh, boring or biased or, or stupid or uh, hard to process. So it's a, it's a difficult tension to resolve. I mean, I think the first book we talked about, the Raymer book, was, was great because it had that second element of being interesting and something you couldn't get elsewhere unless you were going to go sit and, and read it in German or, I don't know, click through it and, and Google translate it paragraph oh by paragraph. Yeah. That'd be a bit intense, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, and at the same time, he wasn't talking about esoteric random nonsense. He was talking about very important key historical questions. Right. And it wasn't, it was, yeah, as you said, it wasn't esoteric. He was effectively just saying these are factual elements of what happened. Although there's uh, there's that aspect of, of citing sources. Well, yeah, but yeah. but at the same time, yeah, you know, be be a, cool, be a cool guy. Yeah, right. Don't even cite your sources. It's cool. But yeah, that's like the better way. Like honestly, because innate truth, like something that's innate truthful will be you know truthful to everybody. So or it, something that is main, something that contains innate truth. Sorry, I fumbled over myself. But yeah, it, it's. We don't have to have the sources most of the time. If you know, if you just know, it's common sense. A lot of right. historical things. The Jews did it. 
Citation, right. Kevin McDonald. Right. <laughs> you don't even need a citation. You don't even need that. I mean, yeah, come on. it's like just look at any ruling group of the Western world right now. You just have to just, just follow names and money and all that doesn't require citations so so yeah this week's episode we're going to talk about Clausewitz more and we have we have more insights i think from the Clausewitz that we've read i think the best way to approach Clausewitz is to apply him to situations that we're all familiar with and so today i want to talk about the ukrainian war in a bit of a Clausewitzian perspective and i'm a bit hesitant to talk about the ukrainian war because the information is also bad and it's hard to know what's going on and uh, also it's sort of a current thing but i think uh i think it'll help us to sort of understand clausewitz if we talk about something that we are all like focused on and, and know a bit about so you don't need to listen to the last episode to listen to this one this is a non-derivative episode ha <laughs> <laughs> Last time we talked about Clausewitz, starting with some of the things like boldness and genius in the general, and then worked our way back toward his general principles and how he arrived at them and then tried to apply them a little bit. Uh, just to start you off, so the, the th- kind of the three main things, the main precepts that I took out of Clausewitz that we mentioned in the last episode were these three. So first is the definition of war, and his war is... And his definition is that war, therefore, is an act of violence intended to compel our opponent to fulfill our will. Second was his definition. This is the thing he's most known for and that everybody's heard before. War is a mere continuation of policy by other means. And I ought to stop there and say it does not, therefore, follow that policy or politics ought to be conducted like war with violence. Uh, If we are talking about politics, the caveat is that when we say when we say politics outside of the military sphere and we talk about violence or force, we mean other things other than shooting people on the battlefield. Things like... Right. There's more than just physical violence. There's more than just physical violence. When Clausewitz talks about violence, he's talking about anything from slaughtering your enemy's army to competing in business with somebody and trying to destroy their business enterprise or competing with somebody by... Uh, insulting them and trying to manipulate them or doing propaganda or a- any number of, of things, both honorable and dishonorable. And then the final thing was that resistance power, your your fighting ability is the product of the available means times the willpower. So the available means in a war in a military situation is number of troops, types of weapons, how well they're organized, how well they're trained, how, how much how well they're resupplied, how well they can maneuver, all these material things, that all goes into that first part, the available means. And then, but that's multiplied times the willpower. Uh, and that's like, how, how much do you want to actually fight? And I'll bring up this quote because I think, it, I think this really illustrates well the, the, the concept of need, that you need to have the willpower because the material means aren't enough to carry out a conflict. If all you have are material means and, and no willpower, then you haven't got a very strong resistance power or fighting force. Right. And well, you know, not, not to take off on a caveat there, but you're starting to see the same thing in the United States military where you have, well, that's the, exactly where I'm going with this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you have all, you have all the means, right. Or you have all the resources, but you have no willpower because what are you fighting for? You know? Yeah. So Just to put it, to put it in a very blunt and, and easy to, to understand to way, but I'm sure you have some very, interesting yeah, I'll just pull, I'll pull this quote. Cause I think it's worth it. So this is from 
the beginning of chapter two where Clausewitz talks about the ends and the means. So this is, I think, very applicable to America, particularly in its most recent conflicts of the last 40 or 50 years. He says, but even when both these things are done, still the war, that is the hostile feeling and action of hostile agencies, cannot be considered as at an end as long as the will of the enemy is not subdued also. That is, its government and its allies must be forced into signing a peace or the people into submission. For whilst we are in full occupation of the country, the war may break out afresh, either in the interior or through assistance given by allies. No doubt, this may also take place after a peace, but that shows nothing more than every war does not carry in itself the elements for a complete decision and the final settlement. So... I mean, if you're thinking, if you were thinking of Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam in that explanation that you haven't broken the will of the enemy, you haven't forced them into submission, you can sign a peace deal. It doesn't matter because you're not signing a peace deal with the actual people. I think Afghanistan is a good one for that. Right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and this is very much the American you know, conception of it. But to, to start this off, my main confusion in this war, I mean, it's been going on since late February and... Uh, Ukraine is a place where you'd expect a blitzkrieg, uh, tank warfare to be very much the way to go. And you'd expect Russia being a very powerful country, having a very uh, large military and Ukraine being right next to Russia for Russia to be able to take over Ukraine very quickly. That's not to say that either of us, I think, believe the propaganda line about Ukraine fighting really well and uh ukrainian heroism and blah 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 like this is the situation the ukrainian situation is their situation is unenviable and sad i would say dire uh, dire but it's not i don't attribute this war dragging on to ukrainian prowess on the battlefield or a logistical ability or anything like that i would say there's some elements of logistics there but like the big thing the big two parts right if we're going to get into the klauswitzian elements to the ukrainian war first first is, is, is to a point you just made about the whole we don't know exactly what's going on there's a big element of, of, of information disinformation all this other stuff it's and and specifically in book one uh Klauswitz talks about uh information and war really so it, effectively information warfare and how to disseminate information in war what what exactly uh what does one you know exactly how do you how do you use information for for military purposes um and i that's kind of one thing that i think is actually happening that we can see as being good it's not good as in like oh it's this is an actual good thing but as far as them doing it well uh is is the ability so that we don't know what's going on currently on oh the when you say them you mean zog zog or russia or whomever isn't any any of the powers that are involved in the situation is that there's so little information getting out that i think they're actually doing their their quote-unquote job well by ensuring that only disinformation gets out instead of the real oh i see i was going to say because shouldn't if it's in the information of one side to restrict information flow shouldn't it be in the interest of the other side to foster it yes and no but that but that comes to who what do you want the population to know so the thing is 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 does the american government uh, after hyping up this war and hyping up everybody to get involved and go against Russia, do they really want to disseminate the information that re- Ukraine's losing? And the answer is no. Of course, they don't want the, the population to know that they're losing the war that they just hyped up and saying that they're going to have victory any moment now, right? It's like Zelensky comes out every five seconds, and we're on the cusp of victory. Every five seconds, you know, we're on the cusp of victory in Ukraine uh, for NATO. But that's obviously not the case. We see right. that time and again, it's now June, right? 
they said that this war wasn't going to last more than a couple of weeks back in February, and here we are in June now. And so um, I think Russia's doing a, a decent job of ensuring that the information that does get out is not necessarily entirely in their favor, but it seems to give the impression that they're, like, they're, there's no there's no real impression. R- you can't Russia's make. not doing any Katyn forests massacres right or and if they are they're not telling anybody about right. it yeah and nobody's finding out about it and the stuff that I, is coming out like buka and all these other quote-unquote atrocities the, the atrocities are clearly bs and they're not getting any traction right. with anybody because it's like oh it, nobody believes it well, because yeah, they, there's no information coming out about it they, they, they give you a bit of propaganda but there's no substance at all to back any of this stuff up right um it, right and you don't see right now among uh, western liberals who are flying the ukrainian flag you, you don't really see i mean even in the mainstream news you don't see any actual outrage you see no. sort of feigned outrage it's yeah. all fake it's the same thing as changing your, your facebook profile picture is effectively right. what's happening right um so i think the information element to it and this is again you know this is this is one that that Klausowitz, i think would would harp on is this the the information warfare it's it's this is almost entirely a digital war for the world right it's almost like a digital world war that we're seeing uh between sides like people picking sides you know a, a china and, and iran with you know russia and these other countries uh like the BRICS countries mm-hmm. uh brazil and all those others that are uh coming to the aid of or not really to the aid but but to to back russia up you know on, on a global scale or a global uh stage saying you know we're not going to join in on sanctions we're not right going to the san- if you look at the sanctions map it almost corresponds exactly to english-speaking or western europe right any place that they can disseminate specific information or japan well right but yeah japan's a vassal state it's it's like a clear (laughs) yeah it's it's vassal states of the west are the only ones that that toe the line on that obviously for military reasons uh but as far as the general population of the west this is an information war by our government against us i would imagine as it always has been um but so there's that but the more important element to this is logistics i think that's the big point is logistics and klauswitz like basically 70 percent of this book is logistics how to fight in a forest how to move troops from this place to the next or you know whatever you get into right Um, it's that uh is it i'm just gonna say it was napoleon is it napoleon saying that professionals talk about logistics amateurs talk about strategy i i'm not sure if he was the one who quoted that but i know he was the one who said an army marches on its stomach Oh yeah, effectively yeah. the same concept, right? So, like, you know, if, if you if you can't feed your troops, you can go nowhere. Clearly, and I think that's so. Talking about the Blitzkrieg on Kiev, right? So we all know that was like the first thing that happened. Right, the first thing Russia did was it invaded in the east and it in the east of Ukraine, and then it also attacked from the north, coming down the Dnieper River toward Kiev right. through Chernobyl from Belarus. Which and so that's that's kind of what I want to focus on as far as logistics were concerned, because they had backings of they had logistical backings with Donetsk and they had logistical backings in Lugansk. They have logistical backings from the, from Crimea. There was no legit logistical backing going into Kiev aside from Belarus, which was not officially part of the conflict. Right. So they hadn't staged their supplies and they right. hadn't developed the roads extra or anything like that right. to, to allow a bigger force to move south. And that's the thing. So also most of Ukraine is still kind of poor, right? So they, they don't have a massive road system in rural areas that's developed beyond dirt roads. And as we know, Ukraine tends to <laughs> tends to be a tank killer. That was the most shocking thing about this to me is if Russia wasn't intending to win and end this war in a few weeks... Why did they attack right before springtime? Yeah, that's, you know, right. And so like even amateurs like us sitting around here watching this, (laughs) like like, the one thing I know about fighting war in Eastern Europe is you're not going to have 
an, the offensive advantage in the springtime right, or the fall. The thaw is, is an issue, right? It's a massive issue when, when the snow thaws. It's, it's a, the, to the advantage of the defense that you can't go off-road. and Which I think that's... The, the, the attacking army can't go off-road and you they're necessarily channeled exactly that and that's why i think that ukraine ukraine used its uh its geography more so to to bog down the russians as compared to its actual military prowess right as you were saying earlier that it's not that it's not that the ukraine's the ukrainians are you know this this phenomenal military force that just stop russia on its tracks like i don't think that's the case at all i think that it had to do with a not to say it's a logistical blunder by the russians but i think it's a logistical oversight for sure especially when they dropped in the vdv to take over those you know initial air strips oh by but, kiev yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they didn't have any way of of supplying those those men, right? They didn't have any way of getting in extra supplies. It was a, it was a daring move, yeah. and maybe maybe it was a good calculated risk. And they just you know some you win some you lose some. In my opinion, what it was is it beyond the logistical thing. I think it was intended to be a distraction to draw troops away from the Eastern Front and bring them to the capital. Okay, well this is this is a theory that I've heard. I'm skeptical that i mean are you saying the entire kiev operation was a distraction i would say that i'd say it's, it's two things it's one a distraction and two a gambit that they may actually be able to pull off the of uh-huh. taking of kiev like it's it's two and one right so if it if we don't actually pull it off right say the, the, like say we're coming from the russian perspective if we don't pull off a total blitzkrieg of kiev get a capitulation in a couple of weeks it'll at least serve as a decent distraction for our troops taking the east up to the dnieper okay i could see i could see that i mean that that it does sound a bit like a post hoc rationalization, right? <laughs> to explain, it's like what I mean. What are they going to say? Like, even if they were truly trying to take Kiev, and that was an essential part of their plan, right? And it failed. Of course, they would say after the fact, "Oh, it was just a distraction." Haha. Well, and that's strange because you know because they had a bunch of logistical mobilization throughout most of Belarus, right? Like they had all these things that are moving into the areas and whatnot. I'm sure that Russia still has a bunch of troops in the Belarusian border regions. Um, yeah. No way. There's no way they would have just. Well, we haven't back seen and- any like offensive by the Ukrainians into Belarus or into the areas of Russia that are. There's been no like counterattack onto Russian territory or Belarusian right. territory, and, and the and Zog forces like you know the United States and and the EU and stuff have deliberately stated that they're not going to send weapons that can that can reach into Russia, um, which I think they they think they just reneged on that not too long ago where they said yeah we'll give you uh, eighty kilometer range missiles or whatever and all that other stuff but Ukraine actually can't go into Belarus because Belarus has not declared war on on Ukraine. well but that I know but when you let. Uh, an, uh, one army invade another country from your territory. Right. You're, you're a participant. Uh, no, I agree. I, I agree. You know, but in in the eyes of this ridiculous uh, bureaucratic political system, where it's like, oh, you can't actually go over there, even though they use their you know their lanes to bring troops in. But if you declare war on them, it's going to look bad on NATO and blah blah blah. Because then, if the Ukraine decides to invade. Belarus, then it's going to look like the Western allies or the aggressor states moving eastward. And it's just, I'm, it's. NATO doesn't have a lot of no. uh, moral, uh, it doesn't have a good moral case to begin with. So I guess right. it would be, they would, wouldn't consider, it would be, uh, yeah. Not to their liking to attack Belarus I th- because I think it's a faux pas until because now as we know currently or, or as of the past few days, uh, there's been reports that Belarus has been amassing a bunch of its uh, troops for a military exercise in this like the southern south central area of its of its country, which again is funny enough right above Kiev, right? Uh-huh. Uh, so they're amassing a huge force to do uh, military drills. 
I don't know why they would use this. I, if, if, if they do invade with this, there's no way they can pull this off twice. Because the Russians use the exact same mantra. To well, they, everybody always does. You always do military drills. Right before. Whether or not you're going to do an invasion. Even if you're just thinking about it, you got to get your troops mobilized. True. Yeah. This isn't like World War One, where... <laughs> If you mobilize, that's considered a hostile action. Right, yeah. The other side has to mobilize. Now it's like, well, we always just conduct drills, so... Yeah, so we're always mobilized, right? And that was kind of the thing. But Russia was able to get a lot of its logistics uh, in and around, to surround surround its its opposition uh, areas. Now, Ukraine also did a lot of sabotage on its own country uh, as far as, you know, blowing up bridges and things like this especially during the invasion of kiev time right where they had mm-hmm. to, to eradicate all these rail lines and everything else uh bridges for roads so that it would slow down the the, the ability for the russians to be able to get you know troops and supplies and, and extra stuff to the the, the right and that, that would make sense why russia sent their paratroopers to try to take the airport yeah because you would assume if you're russia that the ukrainians are going to try to just destroy all of the as much of the infrastructure as possible and you want to secure it yourself because and the thing is and, and they also um underestimated the uh the ukrainian air abilities not to say they had air superiority but in the in the western part of of ukraine mm-hmm. so when they did the initial drop of say the vdv they were that was just to secure the perimeter of that area to do a larger airdrop mm-hmm. so they were going to do a much larger airdrop but they couldn't get that they couldn't pull that off uh russia lost i think it was like upwards of 12 helicopters or whatever just trying to get those troops in and out of those places uh so they had you know, they didn't have air superiority to start with which is it's again it's not world war ii right so you can't just like go drop a bunch of troops in a place that you don't have air superiority or you know some some ability to to hamper down you know uh, anti-aircraft uh weapons or anything else like that so and on top of that the the west had supplied the ukrainian military with an ungodly amount of uh anti-aircraft uh, anti-personnel anti uh you know, armament weaponry uh so they were well equipped i think beyond probably what russia had anticipated initially um not even even with the calculations of, of all the stuff coming in from the west i still think that they they may have they may have slightly undercalculated what was going to happen in western ukraine which is why they they eventually just pulled out right they were like okay this isn't working um and our our logistics can't even get in there we can't and support the, our troops and they also only attacked with what about two hundred thousand men it was yeah it something was, like that it and, was almost probe like and one could say well it, the numbers don't matter because it's the technology that matters or because it's the organization of the forces that matters but i think if you're fighting a war in ukraine you have to hold ground and it's a big country it's huge a huge yeah. country and so you necessarily you need troops not only to attack but you also need troops to hold what you've already taken right and so if you're committing in the north at Kiev and you're, you're commit, you've got troops in Crimea and you're maybe making probes toward Odessa and you're also trying to fight in the uh, east in the Donetsk, uh, Lugansk area, then you've got to maybe let one of those go. See, what I thought they were doing at the beginning was I thought they were trying to do kind of like a fake out like the U.S. did in Kuwait in 1991, mm-hmm. where they sent all the Marines to Kuwait and just had them sort of wave at the Iraqi army and then yeah. did, did a big uh, hooking, flanking attack uh, with armor f- through the desert. 
and I figured the Russians were probably trying to do the same thing where keep the Ukrainians pinned down in the east, maybe make some attacks, just sort of and distract them. around. And then, yeah, like swoop straight down the Dnieper and straight up the Dnieper and just cut the country in two. And then you could just dictate your peace from there. I mean, if you, especially if you've bagged their, most of their, most of the Ukrainians, uh, military forces right and especially you know keep them in a pocket like that but i think that also goes again back to the logistical concept is i don't think that they have the ability to to move right and i would have thought they would have the ability i mean this isn't this shouldn't be i mean just perhaps looking at like world war ii and what the soviets were able to do in world war ii and i would have thought the russians would have the logistical know-how and the higher level planning to figure out They've how been to there a lot. <laughs> how to it's like this is your yeah this is your your literal backyard right you should know this ground you sh- I'm sure they've been wargaming it for decades maybe they honestly thought that college. the west had funded ukraine more and that ukrainians had actually built better roads in the time that they had been outside <laughs> of the soviet union and apparently that didn't happen i mean like most of it's still dirt roads in the, in the, in the well, why areas. even you, why even use roads i don't know you could use i suppose you could use river transport well, the thing is you do like the cossacks did when they attacked against the against the steppe tribes like use okay. use the use the uh, the rivers to move as like your arteries to advance and cut the the step up into pieces that is kind of what i'm, I'm surprised that they didn't use the Dnieper more from the crimean peninsula honestly i mean i know they took curse on because of that right that was like the big deal to, to get that that solidified but um again you said it best they attacked in spring <laughs> you know uh so all those dirt roads were mud and well and the thing is is yeah sure we have modern technology with all these off-road vehicles we have tanks we have everything else but you know we also have to look at what these things are made up of they they aren't while we have all-terrain vehicles they're still tire-based vehicles they can get stuck still you know like the the russian military has basically the same technology that we do in the united states uh so you have like you know air ride style suspension systems and everything else like that and you need you need to be able to uh you know take down tire pressure and all this other stuff and if you don't have the logistical training for that like if you send in just crack forces that don't understand the terrain itself and how your vehicles work with that terrain this is all part of logistics as well right it's like again uh you're not going to send that you're not going to send wagons through open country because they're going to just get bogged down right like back yeah. in the day like say or, or um this is also we, we can kind of bring in the franco-prussian war to this right as far as utilizing logistics and this is directly from clausewitz right like they that was just a few years after you know utilizing his specific tactics in, in 1871 uh, or 1870 and, and and whatnot where they uh the german forces are uh, the you know prussian forces are basically all german forces uh were utilizing railways to effective uh, logistical um advantages that the french did not use at all um so well you, they did i mean i well I, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah it's funny you bring that up i was reading about this a, a few weeks ago about mm. the 1870 war I and mean, this biography of moltke i had yeah and it was very funny the germans had done the staff planning and autistically planned out exactly how they were going to mobilize their troops as in lightning speed and get them to the front and then attack the french under napoleon iii had not done that and there were some absurd situations the funniest one was there was like a an anecdote of this one soldier who was 
raised. You know, it was he was from a territorial unit in uh, Marseille or something, and he reported to his what, where his unit was supposed to be. And they, because his unit was technically stationed in North Africa, he had to get on a boat, go to North Africa, get issued his kit, and then get on a boat and come back and then get deployed. What? <laughs> <laughs> and this was happening all over the place because of the like logistical clusterfuck that it was. Right. That's ridiculous. No wonder France lost that conflict. Yeah. Like so, yeah, but yeah, so they 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 utilized efficient, uh, you know, means of all. And the thing, they also used a lot of established civilian infrastructure, which was a big deal. And I think we've seen this throughout uh, military history over over time, as as more and more of industrialization comes about, or like throughout the industrialized times to now, like you know, early seven or early eighteen hundreds and onward, is that you see more and more of a usage of civilian infrastructure for the military's usage, highway systems, right in the nineteen thirties and forties and things like that. Um, that's again, that's what that's how the U.S. was able to to logistically mobilize on both coasts extremely efficiently uh, by utilizing the highway systems that we had, you know, because before then we didn't have highway systems. So moving large columns of troops from the east coast to the west coast was you know not really i mean it was you could do it but it'd take much longer right as compared to just hopping on i-40 and going straight across the country um so developing that in the 20s and 30s was essential for for logistics and the same thing with the autobahn in world war ii uh for germany they moved a lot of troops and, and things on that the rail lines but europe is easy is easier to move around because of the rail lines and how integrated rail systems are yeah and how i mean just a denser population you're gonna right. have more rail lines more roads yeah and so i that's another thing though is that Ukraine probably doesn't have a a serious civilian infrastructure uh, like it should to the point where Russia would have been a- easily able to to maneuver through there uh, because again we we you know Ukraine hasn't been part of the Soviet Union for you know a couple of decades now uh, so while they are very influenced by them there's they're not directly under Russian control so well, you have this been- weird situation where like both you the whole Soviet Union both Russia and Ukraine and, and everyone else had a big economic depression and and things were really bad in the 90s but then russia's been coming out of it for the last 20 years or so yeah but ukraine hasn't had a commensurate not a bit <laughs> recovery yeah even so much so that they they it's going to take uh, i think they, they the projected rate now is still another um another 11 or so years i think they said before they can even be admitted into the european union because they had they don't have the infrastructure for it they don't have the required you know backing to be able to be you know, to, to meet the other standard requirements to be in the EU. So you, you have this, yeah, they're basically a backwards country at this point because they, they have fallen behind. And so because Russia hasn't been able to develop a civilian infrastructure in this area, or because Ukraine didn't develop a civilian infrastructure, Russia couldn't exploit that civilian infrastructure for logistical purposes. Like they could invading, name a country that they would. But I, I still don't, like, I don't get why Russia didn't account for that because... What I don't know, the, my big question on this war is, why hasn't Russia managed to take tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of prisoners? We're, let's see, three, it's been three months now, four months? It's been four months. The casualties do seem to be pretty high uh, on the Ukrainian Almost side, four though. months. And you would think that the Russians were, would be able to surround all the Ukrainian forces in the east, cut them off, and then force them to capitulate or or die. I mean, most people are going to pick capitulate after a while and you should have huge columns of prisoners. And 
you see a lot of explanations in the news or in Telegram or people talking about it. Some of them include things like, well, the Russians are trying to avoid civilian casualties or the Russians are trying to allow the grain harvest to happen or the Russians are actually doing this or that. And I don't find any of these very convincing. And I'll take the the Clausewitz example. So Clausewitz says there's six objectives in war and six possible main objectives. You can either, number one, annihilate enemy forces. Number two, conquer a province or provinces. Number three, occupy provinces and just hold them like as hostages. Number four, you could conduct a raid or just a, a, a mere invasion of a territory to... Uh, punish the people and demoralize them and try to get their government to capitulate or give you what you want. Uh, five, you can try to disrupt relationships among the allies and supporters of that country. Uh, or six, you can uh, basically just do nothing. And what I don't get is it would seem that the logical thing to do if you're Russia is you get your most bargaining power and your most strength if you simply annihilate the Ukraine's ability to fight back. And that would be by capturing all of their military forces or killing them all off. And I think that that's, I think that they're going to use, I think they're. But unless, the only, the only thing I can see around that is either they don't have, they're trying to and they don't have the ability or they have some bigger geostrategic thing going on here that I'm not seeing. I think it's a combination of points one and five, honestly, because if you look at this, if you look at the casualty rating, it's unsustainable. Like it's, it's almost, they have almost a thousand casualties a day. Oh, the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians, yeah. yeah. A day. That's what the last statistics that came out was by by our side of things, by NATO side. Like this was this, which means it possibly could be worse than that. Not to say deaths, right? I think it's like so. The Russians are going for like the slow twisting your arm until you say uncle. They're doing the same thing that the uh, French and Germans were doing to each other in, the, in World War One, the bleed white kind of thing, right? Uh, just just slaughter them. I would imagine that's the thing. It's just like the slow burn. It's like the thing is, you don't have to have troops in your rear if there's literally nothing there. If you but just you, kill you them. only do that. You only do the slow burn, try to bleed them white and make them give up if you can't just capture them, right? I mean, right. But and that's and there's another element too because it's it's more than just Ukraine they're fighting. I think that's the biggest issue is they're not just fighting Ukraine. True, they, they have to fight NATO as well, effectively, right? And yeah. almost at this point, the UN. And so I think that that's where number five comes into point what, for, uh, for disrupting problems. relationships. Yeah, exactly. So the longer that this drags out, the more demoralized the opposition forces become, NATO forces become. Uh, so they're not Russia doesn't. You're saying that Russia's strategic objective in this isn't capture Ukrainian forces or make territorial demands or uh, stabilize the situation. Maybe their their actual political objective is just to crack up NATO as much as possible. Right. They're trying to destroy the hegemonic. Uh, new world order effectively to make the world multipolar again. I think that's the major the major goal of this conflict. Um, and also obviously to create a new buffer zone between Eastern, well, you know, Europe and, mm -hmm. and Russia by creating new buffer states. Again, Lugansk and Donetsk being two of those uh, and, and whatever else they might be able to create. Okay, so you, we'll throw in then one of their objectives is mere conquest of provinces. Right, yeah. But not the whole thing. They just want to conquer... See, I would have thought that they're... I'm if, sure they would like to, but at the same time, it's not really necessarily feasible because yeah, there's okay. a bunch of other elements to that, right? Because again, we, we, we forget that most of Western Ukraine isn't actually Ukrainian, right? It's, it's provinces that were taken from Romania or from Hungary or these other places you know, during annexation after the Soviet takeover. Mm -hmm. uh, so going into these areas with other ethnic groups that are not 
ethnic Russians or ethnic Ukrainians, right? And you start killing. Say you say you start. Killing oh, I, I, well, I would have never thought. Yeah, I would have never thought the Russians were trying to take the whole country. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Especially the West, because if you take over, yeah, especially the western third of the country, right? That like northern, the Carpathian area. Yeah. Well, well, the, yeah. The whole most of the area, like the northern, the third of the country that's like ethnic or Ukrainian speaking hmm. is the Western part. And then also there's these other areas that are yeah. Hungarian or, or um, Romanian. Romanian. The problem is you've, you've just acquired a hostile civilian population. That's just going to be a burden on you right. in the long term. So I, I don't think they ever wanted to get that. No, I think what they're trying to do is create what Ukraine would be. It was just a smaller country of Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Western part of it. Right. Ruth, Ruthenia. Yes, sorry. Yes, Ruthenia. Uh, so they're gonna, but I, I think Moldova is probably next on the list uh, in some way, shape, or form because of the ethnic, uh, you know, just the ethnic. What you Russian mean for Russia? Groups. Yeah, because I mean, the, just the Transnistria element. I think not necessarily that all of Moldova. Okay, so you're talking about that little that strip of land on the Dniester. Yeah, that's <laughs> legally part of Moldova. I yeah. mean, a lot. Of, I'm just saying this because I I don't think a lot of people know about this. Oh, that's right. True. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because it's something that's almost it's very absurd uh, that there is a strip of land along the Dniester river insignificant <laughs> right between moldova and ukraine that has been i guess under russian military occupation since the soviet union yeah and is and declared its independence i mean it's like four miles wide yeah at it's widest and that declared its independence from moldova uh, of all places right in 1990 or something and has been a independent a, it's almost a land autonomous of, little I would zone. guess drug smuggling and arms dealing and probably all kinds of crazy well, stuff Eastern European fund I'm sure they get into <laughs> but there's a strip of land and that's kind of a Russian colony yeah it's a, it's an exclave effectively um, because of just the, the ethnic population there but it's also that that was the precursor to the invasion of Ukraine still with with the ethnic you know Russians in the eastern part of it uh, same thing with with Crimea right in 2014 uh, when that was when that whole thing happened and so do you have this pretense for where there are Russians there is Russia and that's kind of that goes back to that whole thing with with the Serbs right back mm-hmm. from World War one it's like where there are Serbs there is Serbia I mean it was it was a fear and I can see this I can see that there would be a resurgence of said type of fear in Europe to where they're going to become Russophobic in a sense where it's like well we don't want Russians anywhere near us because as soon as there's Russians claiming to be Russians it gives a pretense for Russia to invade yeah. and take this place over okay so I guess the Baltic states are going to have to be really worried because (laughs) Latvia, I think is, it's not, it used to be 50% Russian speaking. I don't think it's quite that high anymore. I mean, it's 30 or 40%. Lithuania and Latvia do have a, Latvia is the, is, is the worst situation. Latvia has more Russians. Lithuania is maybe like 20% Russians Mm. and Estonia has a a similar minority Russian population. Or at least like a quarter of the population um, that are technically ethnic Russians or whatever. So you're like 20, 25% kind of thing. But so yeah, that is that's an issue, and they 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 do fear that. Like that is a thing. Like, that's probably why the Baltic states are the you know they they do beat the drums of war quite a bit because they are worried about that type of thing happening. You know, and because it has happened before, it's not like it's some foreign concept. It's not like Russia's never invaded the Baltics. You know what I mean? But it has happened. <laughs> so I mean, this whole thing of Russians and border areas being claimed by Mother Russia sounds a lot like Germany in world war ii or the lead up to world war ii and we all know the sort of dumb things that the media always says about that are these parallel scenarios i would say they're not and and the reason being is because while i 
the the Treaty of Versailles breaking up Germany as an empire is not the same thing as the fall of the Soviet Union. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so, and, and even even with, because again, the majority of the places that were taken from Germany had a majority German ethnicity, right? Like places uh, like like West Prussia, right? Pieces of Silesia. And, yeah, Silesia, yeah, okay. um, you know, and any of the other random little places that were carved off from, you know, Sudetenlands or any other place, right? All these other places that, that were around uh, had upwards of 80% uh, German populations, right? So they were legitimately removed from Germany, uh, and then they wanted to return to Germany. Memel was another one too, up in Lithuania, right, mm-hmm. um, you know, north of, of Prussia. And so all these different little places that were removed from Germany in World War One all wanted to come back to Germany by World War Two because they were German, as compared to now, where it's the Russian government utilizing the excuse that there is an ethnicity there. To well, you sound like a neocon, or oh, you sound like you sound like a Nazi neocon. Oh God, <laughs> when Hitler did it, it was cool, but when Putin does it, it's bad. Well, I, I mean, that is a possible it's explanation. It's two different situations, though. I really do think it's two different situations. Well, because with the Russian situation, these minority groups, I think the way the Soviet Union broke up its constituent republics, they intentionally included big minority Russian populations in these notionally diverse different republics so that they, it was just easier to control them that way. That's probably the And case. then when the Soviet Union broke breakup happened, they didn't do border rectification and they didn't include the Russians in Russia, kind of leaving Russia the ability to do this sort of thing and claim that it was their, um, that, Rus- that Russia could interfere in these other countries. But I think you were closer to what is more likely in your first point that Russia's main geostrategic goal here is to break up NATO. Oh yeah, for to, sure. Or to, maybe not to cause NATO to actually uh, be resigned or something or, or turn into a non-entity, but to weaken NATO and right. to weaken the Western alliance. Put pressure on it. And, and again, it's, it's to remove it as a hegemonic entity, I think is the biggest issue. So it's also why you see China getting really involved with this specific issue politically, not obviously militarily, but politically, right? They're not, they're not cucking on the Russia issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time, you know, they're like, no, you got to put sanctions on Russia. And they're like, fuck you no and so they don't and and they although if i were russia i'd be watching my back real carefully oh yeah no you can't <laughs> These I, chinese are gonna uh, yeah but that's the thing though as of currently right now the enemy of my enemy is my friend effectively right so so long as russia is uh attempting to weaken nato china is going to buddy up with them because mm-hmm. nato is the biggest threat to china as well right like yeah. we know that the world police is a big deal and in order for there to be multipolarity this hegemonic entity has to be removed and so i think china and russia both equally understand this i I also think Brazil understands this as well, being in the Western Hemisphere with us. Uh, they are part of the BRICS situation as well. They're with these other countries, and they are more and more becoming autonomous away from the United States. And you see Mexico doing the same thing now, too, with their new populist president, um, trying to, to and he, he boycotted the um, the Summit of the Americas, specifically, uh, just recently in Los uh-huh. Angeles. So Mexico didn't attend because Venezuela, Cuba, and I forgot one other country wasn't invited. So they said that because it's not a full assembly of the americas that it is not actually a summit of the americas and it's just a political agenda so mexico boycotted going even though they're literally right there across the board they could just walk to the to the summit but they said no we're not we're not doing it um and so i think you see this this is uh and that's the thing so i think it's it's russia's goal is to weaken nato peripherally by ensuring that nato solidifies itself as a hostile entity and so all of its peripheral entities will then leave it so all of the uh, all the all these countries like mexico right. or, or Brazil, countries that are 
at least friendly toward America or well, they, put up they, put up with America put up with it yeah and put up with American power the, start to assert themselves right, because they they because they now can right because now that there is no unitary hegemonic entity right like now that NATO is, is starting to crack as a hegemonic entity right they have other options. They can go to Russia. They can go to China. They can open up trade with other countries that have just as much, if not now more so, monetary power, right, in these in these dealings as far as economics are concerned. China is a massive powerhouse, and they're really brilliant with their trade, again, in logistics and how it works. We're talking about, we're talking about again, with Clausewitz, everything is war, right? Specifically, and we talked last, uh, last episode about trade being a military endeavor as well, uh, or a, a, a philosophically a warfare aspect. yeah it's it's war trade can be uh used to further one's interest in conflict yeah juxtaposing that with the idea of, of uh free economic exchange right uh, here in in this in this example we'll, we'll use China. but this is yeah we're not talking about free economic exchange here no, we're talking not. about yeah using other trying to gain advantage on other countries by either cutting off resources or uh, getting them dependent on resources. And that's that's the point about China is that China China is not economically dependent on other people, despite what people say about, oh, they need American, uh, you know, consumers and all this other stuff. Think about that. No, they don't. China's middle class is now like the, the middle class of China, which con- what constitutes the middle class of Chinese society is 700 million people. That's over double the U.S. population and consumers. Do you think they really are dependent on us? I don't think that's the case. I think that they were initially, obviously, for funding because we had the core, right? As far if we're going, uh, you know, reference something else completely as far as economics are concerned, the market cores. Um, if, if anybody's uh, any, any listeners are wondering where, where I got well, the concept uh, of that, it's from a book called uh, "Brief History of the Future" by Jacques Attali. But that's besides the point. But so China, China is not. But America, you're just saying America had the. We had, had so much economic power that China yeah. had to treat with us. It, initially, yeah, which you know, throughout the 90s and the 80s and things like that. Right, of course. Um, and so now that China has gotten to the position, though, where they don't need us, now they're going to start utilizing their, their ability for pressure. And you're seeing that now. They, they've now made military threats saying that we, we are not ruling out military action and we will actually go to military action to take Taiwan. As, as the one oh, they've China said thing. that? They have. This is recently as of last week. Um, so China's getting really really uh i don't don't know if if buck is the word for it but they're they're really starting to to buck up here uh against the united states and and the taiwan issue because again they see that the they see that there's they smell blood they smell blood man they know it they we're weakening across the board we had a humiliating vietnam style defeat in afghanistan right i'd say it's even more humiliating than it is (laughs) i mean people falling out of wheel god yeah and 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 at least vietnam wasn't there was no question of establishing a a pedophilia based regime right in saigon Well, I mean, was there? Hmm. Well, okay. Hmm. I, Who I knows? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Right, but yeah. <laughs> there was an open pedophilic yeah. uh, tendency in Afghan warlords that yes. uh, the U.S. supported. Baki Bazi, for anybody listening, you know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing was awful over there. Um, but so, yeah, so anyway, that's, but going to that point again, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, these other three major elements of Southeast Asia, and we're talking about trade and economic warfare. The thing is, to our listeners, Clausewitz can be applied to all of this in a very poignant way. Like, it is very pertinent to understand Clausewitz and his concepts of war and philosophy of war when dealing with 
all all manner of everyday politics um and you can see it everywhere so uh india is now also starting to break away from nato powers and they are starting to buddy up not surprisingly not with china right because china is a major yeah, rival, rival to, india. to india they're not really friendly with them whatsoever um but they have they have started to get buddy buddy with russia right and so that but but look at, at the uh, this goes into um to uh to, to geopolitics as well is that uh china is now sandwiched between two major rivals russia and india mm-hmm. so that's probably also another reason why they haven't fully backed russia uh because and the, why they haven't really had it out with the u.s right uh that makes sense because again in in a super pinch the u.s and china becoming allies against india and russia would be an it would be an option mm-hmm. you know if that was to be the case because india is, is now moving further away from the united states and getting closer to russia and i think china realizes that and the u.s obviously doesn't like that right right um and india being one of the largest consumer nations on the planet it is a powerhouse of economics and china has but that's sorry going back to the thing about china's uh china's economic wars and utilizing uh trade as warfare they have ensured that other countries that trade with them are hyper dependent on their trade to where if they were to cut off trade with china they'd have nothing um even india at this point india is highly dependent on trade with china despite their aggressive stance towards them which is unfortunately for Neandra modi kind of a foolish move you know like if if the majority of your giant over a billion population country is dependent on another nation for trade you probably shouldn't piss them off especially when it's the chinese like you know they have a much more efficient military than the than the indians do yeah uh so one one thing I, I was gonna add to this, so I remember reading. Uh, there's a couple of books I read a few years ago by uh, Edward Lutwak called uh, "Grand Strategy of the Roman Empire" and "Grand Strategy of the Byzantine Empire." Uh, Lutwak's a Jew, uh, <laughs> but it's a, they're they're pretty interesting books. Yep. And I know there's a Lutwak is one of these people who's in uh, the Washington strategy talking sphere of people <laughs> the the think tankers oh god <laughs> and uh, he a lot of these people talk about Clausewitz, but one of the things that uh, lutwak talks about is the idea of escalation dominance mm. and so when he talks about the roman empire for instance escalation dominance and i'm going to bring this into the ukraine and all this other stuff but it's the idea that if you have a uh, roman legion stationed on the rhine or the danube and your enemy doesn't have a legion. Say they've got uh, they've got war bands. They they can do they can do Vietnam style stuff. They can ambush you in the in the forests and they can harass you. But you've got the legion. You can march into their country and destroy and just destroy their cities. Their their strongest points you can eradicate, and then retreat safely back into your country. So you have escalation dominance. If war goes to a a more violent stage you can put the pain on the other country. And this sort of goes counter to a lot of what you hear in school. Like if you, in school in America, will talk about the French and Indian War, for instance, and talk about, well, the Indians, you know, they had the bows and arrows and they could ambush the British in, in, uh, in the forests and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, or the Saracens could beat the Crusaders because they could harass them. But the thing is, when you are the harassing power and all you've got are the ability to do guerrilla war, and maybe to occasionally annihilate a column or something. The thing is, the other side that has escalation dominance, they can march a column in and pretty much anywhere they want to and destroy whatever they want to. So you can never really set up 
uh, a stable base of supply and a stable economic source. And you're also your political power is uh, doesn't have the credibility because you're not able to protect your own people. Right. And uh, I think that was one of the big issues with Afghanistan for the past like 40 years. You know, is that they had to they keep having to wait for an economic collapse in the in the aggressor country. Right. So, the, oh, yeah. so the, the, the escalation dominance cannot cannot. You know, what's uh, no, they, they can't project their their. their well, I dominance. put it this way in Afghanistan, the U.S. obviously had escalation dominance in yeah. any situation. The U.S. could go and just kill everybody. Right. But the thing is, the U.S. couldn't utilize its escalation dominance in Afghanistan just because it didn't have the will to do so. There wasn't the moral will to just go like exterminate a third of the country. Right. So the Taliban had to wait until the U.S effectively bankrupt wasn't gonna what yeah. just i guess you don't have escalation dominance if you're not willing to use it which was right kind of the but, problem with the u.s and that's the thing is because we rely too much on escalation dom or like there's the counter element of escalation dominance too i think it's the problem with the nuclear element right like nukes well don't of, make this complicated oh. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah you're right but i mean that's that kind of negates that you know as, as far as there, there's only so much that you can escalate with you know between like russia china and the u.s and, and europe because of nuclear warfare you know like eventually eventually the escalation becomes like nuclear winter and well right but if, if you're i mean that that escalation dominance plays into the nuclear discussion because if the other country if you if the other country thinks that you're willing to nuke them and you know that they're not willing to nuke you back then you can pretty much do whatever you want right so that's i think the, the key thing in nuclear war or the the threat of nuclear war is that any country has to make every other country think that it's willing to destroy the world israel does a pretty good job of that with the samson option <laughs> true you know um so there's there is that and actually you know to use israel real quick as an example of that type of thing for escalation dominance they are an extremely tiny country I'm sure they have a it's not really a powerful military but they do have a bunch of nuclear weapons and they're the only ones in the region that have it right so no one's going to really fuck with them but as far as ukraine is concerned escalation dominance i think that that's kind of the thing i think russia's holding on to a lot of its of its ability to escalate the situation and and waiting for you know time to to roll out because again russia has a bunch of stuff in reserves they can continue they can ramp this up if they want to but that's yeah and, that, and that's sort of the other thing about well, let me read this this line from clausewitz uh it's it's short but this is goes to the escalation dominance point if, therefore, one of two belligerents is determined to seek the great decision of arms, then he has a high probability of success as soon as he is certain his opponent will not take that away, but follows a different object. So if you're going to war with another country and you know the other country isn't willing to fight you in a big battle and all you all the other country wants to do is uh, defend a province or capture a province, you can pretty much get whatever you want from them because you know they're not willing to go to that next level right and, and but this you don't but, even have to do it yourself you just kind of have to in, in, infer that you will do this yeah but the interesting thing about this is it it goes you can have dominance even not even just at the highest level but it is possible to have dominance at the highest level and be weak in the middle levels of violence and to lose so for instance let's posit there's three levels of violence there's nuclear war there's conventional war and then there's spies and another oh espionage. spies and trade and bullshit. Oh, oh, Zog bullshit bullshit okay non non non, non war non, shit got you okay all that is at the lowest level 
And so we'll posit these three levels. If America is totally dominant in nuclear and at the lowest level of spies and trade, but is not able to wage a conventional war, China or Russia might look at America and say, all right, well, what if we escalate to conventional war? America is going to lose at conventional war. America's only way to beat us, or to at least tie things, is to escalate to nuclear. But if China thinks that America isn't willing to escalate to nuclear, then China can win or Russia can win by escalating to conventional. That's what we're seeing in Ukraine. And that's kind of like what we're seeing in Ukraine right yeah. now. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that I think China's realizing that the more that this drags on, and that's probably why they're going to start trying to make plays for Taiwan. I say, like, I would say Taiwan is going to become Chinese in the next ten years. I, I, yeah. I know, it's, I know it's, it's a it's a big thing to say or whatever for you know anybody to make that call, but I would honestly say that within the next ten years, Taiwan is going to be part of China again. Oh, they've 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 been making they've been laying the groundwork for it. Yeah, and I don't think the Chinese. I mean, I think the Chinese are going to play their cards exactly right. I think they're clever bastards. Oh, yeah, they are. They're the oldest civilization on the planet for a reason. So, And they're going to get Taiwan back, but they're good. one is tempted to say, like, now would be the best time to do it. Why haven't they done it yet? I, but I, I would think, say it's I not think, yet. Yeah. I think they, they're waiting for the exact right moment. They when, still, they, the, the U.S. is still not weak enough for them to make that play economically and militarily you know like they, they realize that they are spiritually weak militarily clearly mm-hmm. that's the case right like there's they there's no like they, they haven't you know because this is usually not a case where another major nation like nobody just invades parts of europe and the u.s doesn't do anything about it until obviously recently so they did they haven't done anything so i china saw that that they, they didn't do anything right at all right there's just been oh uh hearts and feels or whatever and 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 here's here's some anti-tank weapons and we're going to cry about it right and as it drags out there's also been no threat of escalation beyond that to nuclear war to your point right like the u.s hasn't made the threats of nuclear war escalating beyond again because as you said if the u.s can't win a conventional war then the only way that it can win is to escalate well the u.s is in this bind where it has to hold on to that nuclear deterrent till russia does something truly offensive right and russia I guess is figuring, all right, well, we just got to keep creeping. Yeah. Because are they really going to do it? Because it's not that. Or, they, or, or are, is the West going to collapse before that happens? That's probably what both China and Russia are hoping, honestly, is that. But here's the deal. I don't think either of them actually want to destroy the U.S. either entirely. No, of course not. Because, again, it, that keeps the third player. Because if the U.S. goes away, then it's just Russia. And no, China. I don't think they want to destroy the U.S. I should just say, like, they want to break nato's oh, power yeah. they want they want multipolarity of i course. hate that word they, they I, want but it is tr- it is it is unfortunately inaccurate they things. want yeah. many craft middles right no. <laughs> <laughs> let's just remove all this this latinet stuff so but no so that's kind of the deal is that that russia russia can continue to creep because the u.s will not escalate to to beyond conventional warfare and china realizes this no well, russia it seems that america won't even escalate to conventional warfare at least in ukraine right and now here's another country that is on the periphery that has not been brought up uh you know recently or it has in certain ways only in, in the ways that it normally is brought up but north korea north korea uh, doesn't get up brought up much but that has always been a nuclear escalation right like the threat of dropping nukes on on pyongyang has just always been there since the 1950s basically that's been the escalation of force mm-hmm. and they still use it now right because like that that's also why every time you hear about north korea in the news it's always they're testing nukes 
right? Like they're testing a nuclear weapon so that uh-huh. we can automatically go to that escalation of force to, to North Korea and remove it. Because oh, so you're you're saying you think that Zog puts that information out there, whether it's true or not, right. doesn't matter. But Zog says that North Korea is ready to do nukes because that gives them the that sets the uh, justification out already. Right to nuke North Korea if they ever have to. Yeah, because then they can straight up just nuke Pyongyang and then invade, right, and take over North Korea effectively and have another... Because that, that thing is China wants North Korea because it's a buffer state, obviously, mm, right, right, between them and, and a Zog-controlled thing of South Korea. But if Zog nukes Pyongyang and then goes and invades there, then they have this, you know, massive peninsula underneath their entire control of the South Koreans or just Koreans in general at that point. But then that that's a that's a border between China and Russia that they would control. And obviously, I I think that's also another element of why nobody is is escalating to conventional warfare on that peninsula, specifically because it is like this trifecta between all three major powers, right, between the three major empires in one. It's a, it is a very convenient little yeah. no man's it's land. It's a creepy little micro. You you know, Disney World escape area, but Lulz State. Disney World, <laughs> state based entirely on Lulz. It is, and it's that. That's yeah. But then we see these types of weird flashpoints. I think all over the world, really, that, that these tiny little things. I, I, Afghanistan was is also one of those. I mean, Russia yeah. had there before, right? It was the 80s. We supplied the Taliban. Well, I mean, going back to the British and the Russians in the oh, 1850s or right. 1870s. You, it, right, and you know, opium, the Khyber Pass stuff, and, and like you name, you name, you name a conflict there. But like you have these these flashpoints, right? These these areas that are considered to be war zones. We saw this, uh, there was a book that came out, I think it was uh, Pentagon's New Plan or whatever the heck it was around the year 2000, 2001 or something. No, that came that out. By? I don't remember who wrote it, uh, but it's something about the Pentagon's New Plan for the Some something. like bureaucrat or? It, yeah, he's one of, he's some, 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 top brass dude or whatever wrote it but they talk about a lot of people know about the content more so than the book itself where they talk about the conflict belt that stretches from like north africa down to southeast asia mm-hmm. and it like encompasses the middle east and whatnot like there's like this this essentially like a violence zone yeah that is going to be effectively in constant warfare like that was the point of it uh was to utilize that as flashpoint zones for the major empires to kind of you know exert resources and things to you know just play around with oh yeah i read that book uh it was um from the 50s it was by um orwell Oh, <laughs> I'm just what, playing. That was see, a lame joke. See what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the whole like oh, four, three big countries well, fighting no, over Africa the all the time. 1984 is extremely accurate, surprisingly, in certain ways like that. Like where you do have the three major empires. You have like the, the Eurasian Empire and the Far East Asian Empire and then the Atlantic Empire. Right. Those are the three major ones that we're seeing today. We see NATO, Russia, and China. It's just the same thing. Uh, so or I don't think Orwell was wrong. A lot of the stuff. Oh, yeah, he, he wasn't. And yeah. I, love, I love how... Now we're thinking of Orwell and, and Eurasia. Yeah. Uh, back in the 1950s and 1960s, it was sort of a conservative thing. Talk, oh, that damn Ruskies. We got to fight the Ruskies. And yeah. <laughs> then Pinko's coming over the here. Pinko's. <laughs> and like we've had this thing now ever since 2016 when Trump got it, started getting accused of being a Russian agent. Yeah. And now <laughs> liberals have started doing the, the damn Russians. Uh, we have to do something about these Russians. Uh. No, okay. As an aside, <laughs> in a caveat, funny. In, as a side caveat, just as like a quick, uh, just a quip, I was at a cafe about like about a month ago, right? And it was like a total liberal area. Like everything was all totally swivel, right? Fantastic place. Everybody loves it. But there was these two older kind of guys they're probably like around their 50s or whatever you know slightly gray hair or whatever total liberal kind of looking guys mm-hmm. like total leftist dudes i 
and you wouldn't be able to distinguish the rhetoric they were saying from somebody that was from, like a Fox uh, News Robert, conservative. Robert Welch, yeah, circa 1960. They were, they were like basically talking about like Russian genocide on like it just casually over a sandwich in a cafe. And they're like, obviously they voted for Biden. So it's I have no idea what's happening anymore in this country. It's ridiculous. It is fun. It's just funny that I don't know. I, I don't know why we expect liberals or conservatives or anybody to have consistent positions that's true yeah they kind of or just, to actually believe in anything also true uh, yeah. but it, it is still surprising to I me think it's to projection see. that we want people to have legitimate positions of conviction that's like we aren't do. you supposed to be anti-war isn't isn't being isn't hating russia or being scared of russia or whatever isn't that like a dumb conservative thing like shouldn't you aren't you supposed to be enlightened and well we're talking about the same type of hypocrites that will say that you know racism is bad but also whites are stupid so yeah or like, racism is bad but like fuck chinese people or something right yeah, yeah it's some retarded shit so yeah that makes no sense at all like it's either racism is bad universally or racism good <laughs> like or you engage in it regardless you know so, um, but yeah, no. So back back on topic for uh, for logistics uh, and 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 uh, Klauswitz and, and Ukraine and all this other fun stuff. So that that is kind of the deal. Is that this, there's this slow creep going on? I'd imagine that a lot of the logistical issues that we're seeing is are the cause of why Russia is having such a slow creep to the Dnieper. Um, just a consolidation, as you said, because you don't want to have guys behind your lines and everything else like that. You have to leave troops and, and stuff. So I think that they're doing this slow creep just eating away, chipping away at eastern Ukraine until they can get far enough. Because obviously, I think they're going to go for the, the Dnieper. Thing that has, the, the, the physical barrier that that creates nah, is... No, nah, I don't think so. Do you think they're going to go further? No. Well, I, either farther or, or not as far. Because I think if you set up... Think about it. If you set up... I hate to get into speculation like this, but look, right, yeah. if, you, if you push all the way up to, to the Dnieper, if you're Russia... Then you've got this like, yeah, you've got a great line and it's it's the line that the Germans sat on successfully for six months in 1943, 44. Right. Uh, it's a great defensive position. But at the same time, like, I think if you're Russia, you want to take enough land, but you want to leave yourself nice little bites that you could take. Mm. So like if I were Russia, I would want to either go a little bit west of the Dnieper and create a buffer zone and have like sort of that. There's like that curve in the Dnieper and to the south mm. where you could have like a big piece between the Dnieper and, and Transnistria where you could just take it really quick. Oh, you, or the Odessa or, corridor then, yeah. Basically. Yeah. Or or farther, if you don't go nearly as far and you just take the southern part of the Ukraine that they've already got and the eastern part that they've already got and you leave like a big piece out in the open there mm. that's not yours and you're not claiming, then it becomes part of the rump state and you also give yourself the ability to then attack it easily later mm. and claim it if the puppet government isn't going along with you. That, yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. Like, I don't think Russia, like, what it seems to me is that Russia isn't really interested in final decisions. Mm. They're fine with playing a very slow game yeah in in everything that they're doing i still think that though even like as it'd be a logistical nightmare though for them to get bogged down afghanistan style in ukraine though i just don't think that i don't think it could happen i don't think it would happen because like again it's right up against their own border well right and then there's also i don't think it's going to be harder to do a guerrilla war of russian-speaking eastern ukrainians <laughs> against the russian government right than say you know muslim uh postunes against a bunch of boys from kentucky right <laughs> uh, you know the u.s army yeah it gets it, there's That's there's true, actual yeah. ethnic and, and and cultural and racial animosity that you can work with right in the afghan or the iraq situation there As isn't compared to east east yeah, ukraine <laughs> east ukraine it's like 
but and that that goes to the to the logistical mobilization though of belarus because if, if belarus gets involved in this as well right they're going to have the same logistical issues going into kiev if not more so now i would Russia be i'm skeptical i'm very skeptical i don't think i don't I would think that what Belarus is actually doing is just is just kind of creating a little bit of a threat and mobilizing their army. I don't think the Be- I don't think if I were Moscow, I would trust Belarus to have the offensive capability and then and reliability to extend into Ukraine because that, that that undermines like I would keep them as a militarized would, buffer state. Exactly. And I would also keep I mean, maybe the Russians want to have like a threat, but they also want to keep the Ukrainians from attacking into Belarus and destabilizing it right. or doing CIA gay ops in Minsk or something. Yeah, true. Uh, so I, I don't think, well, I guess we'll see what happens. Right. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, the, maybe it'll be a glorious Belarusian invasion that will <laughs> carry the day all the way to Lvov. But that would be an interesting situation. <laughs> Russia humiliated by, by a, a vassal state. <laughs> well, I mean, this whole war, we're yeah. joking, but this whole war in a way is like, Chechnya, uh, <laughs> Chechnya, <laughs> Chechnya invades Ukraine. Russia approves. It, yeah, basically. <laughs> Thanks, Kadi Ruff. <laughs> but yeah, no. So as far as logistics are concerned, that's that Ukraine is is a logistical nightmare, effectively, just because of sabotage elements. It just and, shouldn't be though. It's so close to your damn country. I know. It's so close to your damn country. It's the same sort of ground. But infrastructure is a big deal. Infrastructure is a massive deal. And I, we've seen this. Russian like, soldiers don't need infrastructure. They ha- they like have a shovel and they eat bar- uh, birch bark. See, but the thing, they don't have the same spirit the Soviets had. Yeah, not, <laughs> these Russians have gotten soft. They have. Yeah. <laughs> they don't just send mass waves of troops at the enemy. Where is, where is the contact? <laughs> so yeah, but that's, I think, uh, I think the major thing though, and this, it's Klaus talks about this as well as utilizing established routes, right? Like established roads and everything else like that. He talks about using civilian infrastructure as part of as part of logistics and mobilization. And not that it was massively developed in the early 1800s, right? That wasn't the thing, but there were roads. People had roads. Yeah. Like the King's Highway was a thing. So you would use that if you, and he talks about when, um, just to, to bring in another element to Clausewitz, there's a chapter where he talks about uh, uh, fighting in forests specifically. Mm-hmm. And he makes a massive distinction between uh, forests that are like thick brush that are impassable effectively by, mm-hmm. by military units and what he considers forests with quotes around it, uh, where it's massively wooded areas that are still inhabited but they're it's cleared out effectively mm-hmm. but it's just trees uh with still that has that have roads and things running through them um and he makes this distinction specifically because again in certain areas if, if you're fighting in forests most of the time there's a lot of mud unless you have established roadways and so ukraine has a lot of forested areas and a lot of these forested areas don't have a lot of well, infrastructure going through. like up north i think they do yeah i mean they're not like it's not like forest it's, it's mostly step most of the, it's well, steps, the east but they yeah. do have again like we're talking about like the chernobyl areas when they invaded yeah, the, into the kiev areas a lot of wooded areas there right and a lot of it's not traversed by roads it's just open forest which in in Clausewitz's mind would be don't do that like that's a bad move do not do not fucking do this because you you can't effectively move your men through this established through this area and on top of that it kind of breaks up your ability to fight effectively in these areas right so that's again that's a logistical problem um but again, well but you know the one thing that Clausewitz didn't or couldn't have accounted for is probably does make sense to attack in a forest when you don't have air superiority and if it's an open forest that has roads on it like the Ardennes. We see that yeah, those the, yeah. the Ardennes would be the best way to do that. Um but at the same time the Ardennes landscape is different than 
than Ukraine. Uh, it also doesn't have the same uh, the same issues as far as mass snowfall and mud and all this other stuff. It gets muddy, sure, don't get me wrong, but yeah. at the same time, you're talking about two, like also, okay, so Ukraine gets hotter in the summer than the Ardennes does, right. right? And so during that transition between winter, spring to summer, the massive thaw into that heat, right? Like you're gonna get a lot of buggy, muggy, swamp type of, of terrain. And it makes it more impassable in the forested areas there than you would say in Northern Europe. Um, so when when uh, Hitler and, uh, and Rommel did the Blitzkrieg uh, through the Ardennes forest or whatever, it was much easier for them to move armored vehicles through there, through terrain that was not established, right? Through through uh, non-civilian routes, so effectively open country, uh, open country. So they were able to move mechanized weapons through. And there you, they had lighter vehicles back then too. Also and, that, yeah, because yeah, now you have a, a, a tank that weighs like three tanks did back in the day. Well, with the exception of like tigers and things like that. But but they didn't have tigers in 1940. True, they didn't. You know, but the tigers also got bogged down in mud in Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's we see that that consistent thing. So well, and the other good thing, I guess the good thing, the thing going for Russia is that its ally buffer state Belarus is just a giant marsh. <laughs> yeah, it's impassable effectively. Um, well, if anybody was to go open country, right, in the in the wrong times. So that's that's another. Like, so honestly, I think Clausewitz would have would have critiqued the 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 Drangnok Kiev, <laughs> and 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 said this was probably a foolish move because uh, you can only get in there with paratroopers at this point in time, and you don't have the ability to to effectively move uh, move men and, and vehicles and equipment into that area and support them. Hmm. Um, and well, we saw that's what happened, and they had to pull out. Uh, it, it effectively unless unless the whole point was just to be a distraction, effectively. Yeah, if it was. A, a faint. Yeah. If it was, if it was just a faint, then it did work and did its job with the sacrifice of quite a number of Russian troops, um, which is why I don't think it was totally a faint. I think it was. Well, it's, it's one thing to conflict. lose like a few thousand National Guardsmen yeah. of Russia. It's another thing to lose your elite paratroopers. Right. The VDV was not a, not something that you know you want to lose, which is why I think that it was either. I think it was a two a two type of attack, right? It was it was either it, we're going to try to go for Kiev, we're going to try to get capitulation quickly, and if it doesn't work, then it was a good distraction to get troops out of the east. So either way there, but I still think Klaus has probably would have had a lot of commentary of saying, yeah, no, because they're going to blow up all the bridges and you're not going to be able to get guns and ammo to your men or other men too. There, you know, you can't effectively keep it up. Um, so. Yeah, that that was. I think that that would have been a critique by Clausewitz on on this invasion in Ukraine. Is that 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 was just not planned too well going through that northern area. Right. You'll notice that in this entire discussion, we haven't really taken a side here. We've just tried to be uh, analytical. Oh yeah. On Russia and, and Ukraine, I've made my position clear on that. I don't really. I I guess I should briefly re- restate it that our. As a dissident, I think our interest is in our primary objective, our sole objective is seeing a change of ruling class in the Western world. Right. And there's really not a lot. I can't think of anything that would get in the way of that being the main objective. No, I don't know. Uh, and insofar as so any any calculation on, well, the Ukraine war is bad because people are being killed or this, that or the other thing. It's like, OK, but how does this war affect our domestic politics in America and, and in it Western shouldn't Europe. change anything because in the long term, right? Because in the long term, what matters for us is a complete change of, of system in the Western world by legal means. Right. And, 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 and to the, to and the favor when, of the Western world, right in favor of the Western world. And obviously without, uh, you know, foreign interference, I think that shouldn't even be a question that there's 
for that we that we would want we as as dissidents would want a foreign influence or a no. foreign foreign help in overthrowing what we see as a illegal and illegitimate oh. uh, an immoral regime and a malevolent for that matter regime and but no yeah why would we want to trade one one uh, oppressor for another it's ridiculous yeah it's right? like okay they, well you, you're telling me that that russia oh russia might occupy like parts of europe okay but europe's already occupied by foreign power right so, look at Germany. Germany like, is occupied by both France, uh, France, Britain, and the United States up until a little bit ago. The Jews. Well, right. Yeah, true. Okay. So, well, you know, yeah, sorry. Let me rephrase that. Countries controlled by Jews occupy other countries in the West. And that's kind of the issue is that I, uh, and that's another thing people like to, in the mainstream, we can kind of get off on this. This goes, actually, this, this ties into Klaus's information concept. So let's, let's put a point here in, in the information war. Um, the dissident movements of the West are, aren't anti-west we don't we're like we're not traitors we don't hate our own like we don't hate the western civilization we don't hate the western world we don't want to destroy it and create something new we love the west we care about it we love our history we love you know our architecture we love our our fashion we love everything about the west our art and everything else like the actual stuff right not this nasty uh jewish crap that was pushed upon us you know in the past hundred years but like legitimate western civilization we want to see it thrive we want to see it succeed we love it that's it's our it's our civilization agreed you know and so th- this this nonsense about how oh we got to look at the you know we look we have the, the dissidents have to be looked at as, as traitors and that you know that they're evil and they, they don't you know they, they want to destroy the the system no we don't we actually you know like western civilization we just think that the people in power are not western and they need to be removed also add and that, there's traitors well certainly and and I, it, I do not see at all how it, it affects our ability to achieve our political goals, whether the Russian army stands at the Dniester, the Dnieper, True. or whatever the fuck uh, river in Ukraine. Right. It's just, it's immaterial. Or if China takes Taiwan. <laughs> or if China takes Taiwan, whatever. Like, who cares? If, who cares? I mean, if we if we were the government, these might be, you know, geos- geopolitical things that we should care about uh for the preservation of the economic uh strength of the west i don't know i mean that's a bigger question that's a different question i would honestly say but even even if we're talking about geopolitics if we want to cooperate even if we like a serious thing if we want to have a world like a a, a un right a, a a union of 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 the the global powers and and a cooperation between the nation states of the planet that have interlocking trade and that everybody can benefit from and that we can all mutually grow together and then get off this rock and maybe go into space the only way for that to happen is if we actually cooperate with other governments like yeah if china is a massive empire right and they have a tiny little island off their coast and they say this is part of our one china policy the united states even like is even geopolitically or economically there's no reason for us to hold on to Taiwan. That's not our right. business. Right, but it has to be from a position of strength, of course. And right. It has to be, okay, China, uh, we cede you Taiwan. Uh, our interests are these are the only way you can have that sort of honorable cooperation among peer powers is if everyone if everyone is ruled by a regime that is essentially moral and right. honest. And what's the thing is we could trade, you know, this gets on a tangent though, but no, it actually doesn't really get off a tangent because this is all part of Klausowitz's concepts of, of how to to utilize uh, uh, trade and other types of things like your, you know, your, your bottom tier escalation elements, right? Mm-hmm. China wants Taiwan. Sure. We're going to need trade assurances though for that, right? And, and you lock them in trade assurances with these types of things and you get them involved in this because Taiwan is honestly really too far away 
to project enough power in our wheelhouse to actually do anything. I think China knows that. Like, sure, we can like harass them. We put like you know frigates around it and everything else like that, and say we're going to do something. Um, but that's the thing. Biden already cucked on that already and said we're not going to militarily interfere if China invades. He already said that, like in public. So. Why, China has no reason not to at this point. They know that the U.S. isn't going to do shit. They know that they're not going to escalate beyond, you know, the basic yeah, trade. Yeah, I, I would say the only thing holding them back is they don't want to deal with the bureaucratic nightmare of reorganizing that country. And oh, yeah. Any, any people that are killed or anything that's damaged in, in the transition, in, in the, the Anschluss of Taiwan. Right. Well, they're it, already, it just it undermines their credibility and, and stuff. So. Well, cause, and they're already, they're already dealing with reintegration of Hong Kong currently. Right. They already have one of these breakaway nations that mm-hmm. they're trying to, to reintegrate. So I think that I think they're going to wait till ta- till Hong Kong is totally under heel before they even really start making moves towards Taiwan. That makes sense. Yeah. Because they don't have any of that umbrella Antifa yeah. BS going on. Right. Because you're going to have you're going to have you can't have two provinces. Of, again, it's like the more the more fields you open up to. Right. The more fronts you open up to the more slip ups you're 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 going to probably, you know, make or be subject to making in a sense or, or more vulnerable uh chinks in the armor uh, <laughs> oops <laughs> uh, but uh yeah no i think i think that the hong kong thing and that's again that goes to, to trade conflict right so escalation bottom tier escalation of, of force is trade uh and and hong kong is a major element to that trade with the west and all this other stuff so once they took that I think that they have to wait for the for for the West to forget because again, they the West likes to memory hole everything with the propaganda we have over here. Eventually, they're going to forget about Hong Kong being taken. Eventually, um, the only people that might not forget about Hong Kong is the Brits, just because you know. And on top of that, they moved the majority of the population of Hong Kong to England, so they probably won't forget about it because of of you know uh, foreign ethnic lobbies. Uh huh. Um, but as far as the majority of the West, I think eventually we're going to forget about Hong Kong in the next couple of years, and then Taiwan's going to be on the menu. I will say the one thing that relating to dissidents in the West and uh, being called disloyal because uh, we don't give a damn uh, at which river the Russian army stands <laughs> and see see this this conflict only as, I mean, a tragedy for the Ukrainian people. Oh, and, yeah, it sucks. And, and it's, it's horrible and we don't want that to occur. But this this sort of thing occurs because of the government that we have that engages in these uh, dishonorable and and dishonest dealings with foreign powers right. and can't come to reasonable agreements with them about who's uh, control who has control over which state it's similar to the south tyrol question mm-hmm. where this is exactly what what caused hitler to write his second book about foreign policy was having to deal with conservatives and so-called nationalists in germany getting all worked up about whether or not the Italians controlled South Tyrol or whatever bad things were happening to the German population in South Tyrol under Italian control. And Hitler took the position that it does not matter. Like it is sad and it's unfortunate and we don't want this to be happening to these people, but our foreign policy, we're not going to, we, the not the National Socialist Party of uh, German workers are not going to take a, a foreign policy position that is opportunist and contrary to the interests of the German people. And a and what did Hitler do when he took power? Well, he made a deal with the Italians and he took to, he took the South Tyrolese out and was going to re- I think he reselled them in, in Poland or in, in Prussia. Oh, uh, um, whoops. Out of the out of the frying pan into the fire. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe they maybe they put them in Silesia. Oh, you like mountains. Here you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they like to distract you with these you know, seemingly. Oh, but there's there's white people here. You should care about it. 
No, you should care about the shitty government that you have. And how does this foreign policy situation matter to my the domestic situation that we're dealing with? That's the most important thing. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll wrap the episode up there. I know it's been a bit short this week, and we talked a little bit more about current affairs than we otherwise would like to, but I, I hope it helped illustrate some of the points from Clausewitz. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Like, Klaus, like On War is a foundational text. Every, if you should, everybody listening should at least attempt to read parts of it or the whole thing if you can. It is, it is something that should be applied to basically every aspect and of it, life. And it is, very, it, was, it is something that was very much on Hitler's mind throughout his life. Consistently. Uh, he referred to it a lot. I've heard it said that it was Hitler's three biggest intellectual influences were Wagner, Ludendorff, and Clausewitz. Nice. I don't know why Ludendorff, but... I think it's just because it was right in his mind at the time, you know? Like, <laughs> I mean, it was there hanging out, I guess, so yeah. <laughs> they talked. But Clausewitz was certainly someone that he read and, and was reading throughout the war, and you can almost see exactly where some of his decisions were coming from, from passages right, in Clausewitz. Yeah. Clausewitz is not... A lot of people will try to reduce Clausewitz to some very simple doctrine, like Clausewitz says you have to destroy the enemy. It's like, well, no, he doesn't. Yeah, it's he not he says that's one possible way you can go about it. Clausewitz is not a, a prescription for how to fight a war or how to do politics. He's a an analysis of how it's war a philosopher, really, is done. Opinion. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a, you know, he's a military philosopher. I would say is probably the best one of the. Yeah, best I, ways I would to say he's a philosopher. People, some people are snobbish about the use of the word philosopher True. nowadays, and they they use it to mean person who makes groundbreaking discoveries in metaphysics or epistemology. Mm. But Clausewitz is a philosopher in the Greek sense of the word of someone who thinks about something important in a systematic way. Yeah, and that's again part of the show is we're trying to get back to the roots. So yes, we're trying to get back to the roots and inspire the people to do the same. So thanks for the episode, uh, William, and we will see you all later just to give you a little bit of an idea of some of the stuff we have coming up. So we're looking at doing an episode on the Holy Roman Empire, just as an overall picture and some discussion of its main historical trends. I mean, it's something that you don't get in American history and it, that very few people know about. It's despite, very much neglected part despite of Despite its being a, a huge, pe a thousand <laughs> years of you know, half or a third of our civilization. It's just not even discussed. Right. So we're going to talk about that. Another one we've got, actually already recorded, we just haven't released yet, is, is one on clergy. That should be interesting. We're holding it back for now just to put out some more foundational stuff yeah before hre we get, before we get into calorie yeah we're not we're not gonna Because honestly you need hre foundational understanding of that before you can get into calorie really oh yeah he certainly was he came out of the well not the holy roman empire but the austrian empire yeah, so it was the remnants of, of in a way it was the the, the remnants of that yeah, for that sure. whole political entity Habsburgs. so we will uh see you next week Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Deutschland, du wirst leuchten stehen, mögen wir auch untergehen. Vorwärts, vorwärts, schmettern die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Ist das Ziel auch noch so hoch? Jugend zwingt es doch. Wir marschieren, wir gehen, da durch Nacht und durch
Jugend, Jugend, wir sind der Zukunft Soldaten. Jugend, Jugend, Träger der kommenden Taten. Ja, durch unsere Fäuste fällt, wer sich uns entgegenstellt. Jugend, Jugend, wir sind der Zukunft Soldaten. Jugend, Jugend, Träger der kommenden Taten. Führer, wir gehören dir. Wir Kameraden.